Brother Simon has been teaching on the Holy Ghost recently and um, not really tying in with that but the Lord led me to actually, well, I guess dial it back a bit and and uh, and preach or rather teach is, is more what I'll be doing this morning on repentance. We know that there are three aspects to salvation. There's the repentance, there's being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ um, in the water and then there's being filled with the Holy Ghost. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at repentance. The title of the message is Repentance, What Does It Mean? As a church, um, as a national church, uh, the United Pentecostal Church of Australia, we have something that are called the, our Articles of Faith. It's what we believe in. It's not equivalent to the Word of God. It's not something you can take and, and, and say that it's straight from the mouth of God. But it is scripturally backed. And it goes through exactly what we believe and why we believe it from the Bible. And so everything in there is, is based on the Word of God. It has a, a section for many things, and one of the things that it has a section for is repentance. And so I'll just read what it says about that. The result of genuine repentance is confessing and forsaking of sins brought about by godly sorrow, as per Second Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10. John the Baptist preached repentance, Jesus proclaimed it, and the apostles emphasized it to both Jews and Gentiles. Acts 2.38, Acts 11.18, and Acts 17.30. The word repentance comes from several Greek words which mean change of views and purpose, change of heart, change of mind, change of life, to transform, etc. Jesus said, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. So it gives us an idea of just how important repentance is, Luke 13 and verse 3. Luke 24 and 47 says and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. God has called us, commanded us to preach repentance, to preach to people that to get their lives right with God. As you can see from the first um, sentence um, in the article of faith, um, repentance consists of three parts. The first one is godly sorrow that we've committed sins. The second is confessing of our sins and that they are sins. And three is forsaking of sins. So there needs to be a godly sorrow, a confession, and a forsaking. All three bring about true repentance. You miss one of those out and, well, you actually don't really have true repentance. All three parts are necessary for true repentance. If you don't forsake your sins then how have you truly repented or turned around? If you don't confess your sins, if you don't admit that you've done wrong in a particular area, then how are you going to forsake that wrongdoing? You don't, haven't even admitted that it's wrong. So you're not going to stop doing it. And without godly sorrow, we can confess our sins and try to forsake them, but it won't be long before we're doing them again. After all, we're not sorry that we've done wrong. We've just admitted that it's wrong, and then we try to change. But then you're just doing it in your own power. And without, but without being truly sorry, what's to stop us from doing it again? So we can see that all three parts are necessary for true repentance or a true change or a true turning around, a true walk, starting to walk with God and not 
according to the ways that we have walked previously. Let's look at what the world thinks repentance means by looking at the dictionary. And I've got something here from the Chambers Dictionary, 9th edition. Repent. First one is to regret, be sorry for, or wish to have been otherwise what one has done or left undone. Number two, to change from past evil or misconduct. Number three, to feel contrition. Number four, to sorrow. Number five, to affect with contrition or with regret. Number six, to regret or feel contrition for. Notice that only one of these meanings specifically talks about an actual change. And that's the second one, to change from past evil or misconduct. Most of them refer to regret, contrition or sorrow. And none of them mention an actual confession of the sin. That that is what's important to actually repent of something. Contrition, for those of you that are wondering, has two meanings in the dictionary. First one, and the major one, is remorse. And the second one is deep sorrow for past sin and resolve to avoid future sin. And that's the, the term from Christianity. So we can see that the world mostly sees contrition and repentance as remorse, sorrow, and regret. That's what repentance means to people. If you repent of something, then you're sorry. But it misses out on other parts, important parts. That's what most of the dictionary meanings imply. And that's one of the reasons why it's so important to teach new saints, new people, and even those who have been here for a while, because we can have these preconceived notions and ideas of what these words mean. We can say, repent, okay, yes, I I just need to be sorry. That's all I need to do. I just have to feel sorry for my sin. But it's more than that. Repentance is more than just saying sorry. How many times have we read in the papers that people have been caught doing something wrong and said that they're sorry? I'm I'm sorry that I've done that. I'm I'm, I'm really sorry um, that I've done that. I, I, I can see that it's wrong. More often than not, they're saying, I'm sorry that I've been caught without truly changing their ways. That's really what they're sorry about, the vast majority. However, there are some that would actually realize that what they've done is truly wrong and actually have a a sort of a godly sorrow, uh, an actual sorrow that they have actually done what they have done and then do something about it. There are some that are genuinely sorry, admit they've done wrong and take steps to ensure that it never happens again. This, after a worldly fashion, is true repentance. Without being repentant to God, they're, they're truly repentant to the people that they've wronged or to um, the organization or whoever, whatever, has been wronged. So, let's have a look at a, at a recent example of, of someone, well, of, well, all right, let's just take it from here. Um, there recently has been a, a Financial Services Royal Commission looking into the misconduct of Australian banks. Um, it's been all over the news and it is, is something that is, is very topical now. What I'm going to have a look at um, just briefly are the bank's responses to what has been found by the Royal Commission. Are the bank's responses a worldly kind of repentance, an actual repentance of what they have been doing? 
we need to have a look at the three ingredients sorrow, confession and forsaking of their sins I want to read just some excerpts from an article um, which uh, is from Business Insider, Australia, Business Insider Australia called A Day of Shame here's what the banks say about the Royal Commission report Um, And it just goes into a bit of background detail. The interim report of the Financial Services Royal Commission identified dishonesty and greed as the main theme from its investigation of misconduct by the banks. Basically, banks have been ripping off people, taking their money without without having the authority to do so, and and really just doing whatever they wanted. The people who are meant to be overseeing them and ensuring that these things don't happen have just allowed the banks to only uh, to actually choose their punishment uh, without giving them a punishment and it's all been a, a big huge mess the Australian Banking Association says banks accept responsibility for their failures and right now they are working day and night to make things right for their customers the National Australia Bank for us at NAM. Where we have made mistakes or done the wrong thing, we will own them and fix them. It is difficult to face the statement of profits before people, but this is exactly what we need to confront. The ANZ, we accept responsibility and we are determined to improve, he says. The Commonwealth Bank, the Commission has highlighted the need for significant changes, particularly to systems, processes and culture. I am committed to making sure that we learn from the failures detailed in this report to fix what went wrong and put things right for our customers. While these are just parts of the full article, you can see that with each of the banks it can be argued that there is a confession of wrongdoing and a determination to not repeat the mistakes again. They're going to own their mistakes, they're going to fix it up, they're going to do the right thing by the customers. But there's one vital ingredient missing, actually being sorry that they've done wrong to their customers. If you were to read the full article, you would see that the only sorrow that they have is that they've been caught and their dirty laundry has been aired and that they now need to respond to the Royal Commission. They're ashamed. The title of the article is is saying it's a day of shame. They're ashamed, but you can be ashamed without being truly sorry. (laughs) You can just be ashamed that you've been caught. They don't actually even apologize to anybody in what they say. So it can be taken that from that that if the opportunity arises again and if they think they won't get caught, they will cross the line once again because it's not true repentance. It's just um, just two out of three um, of, of the things that are needed for a true repentance. There, there's a military example of repent. And soldiers repent. And that means they're walking in one direction. The, 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 the person overseeing them says, repent. And then so they turn around and walk in the opposite direction. And that's not really a, a godly repentance either because they're just turning around. They're, they're walking the other direction. Um, they're not actually sorry that they were walking in the direction in the first place. They were just told to do that. Um, so there's just a turning around. But that's what uh, one of the things what, what the world believes is repentance. Repent, you turn around, you just turn, you walk in a, in a different direction. What about repentance in the Bible? There was a man that we find out right at the beginning of the New Testament called John the Baptist. 
Bible says that he was God's messenger. He was sent to prepare the way of the Lord and to make his path straight. How did God choose to make his path straight and prepare the Jews for Jesus' ministry? It was through the baptism of repentance. Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. Um, thank you, Daniel, for that. Um, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John, who this verse is talking about, or the, the previous verses uh, which were in the Old Testament, did baptize in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And there went out to, unto him all the land of Judea and they of Jerusalem and were all baptized of him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. Just about the whole land of Judea and the inhabitants of Judea, Jerusalem came out to John and were baptized, except for the scribes and Pharisees, who were rightly called a generation of vipers and told to bring fruits, meat for repentance. The others, they came out, they, they, they heard the preaching of John and they realized that they weren't following God in the way that they should have been and they were baptized of John. But when the scribes and Pharisees came, John said, well, you're not actually really repentant. You're not ready for repentance. You're not sorry about the things that you're doing. You're not sorry about doing all these things against God's people in the name of God himself. But this baptism of repentance at this time by John was for the Jews only and only for this time. God had a more complete experience prepared for his church later, but the Jews needed to be prepared for what Jesus was going to minister to them. The only way they could be open to listen to the voice of God was through repentance. There had to be that preparation. There had to be that change in themselves that would open themselves up to what Jesus was going to say. Because Jesus was going to say a whole heap of stuff that they'd never heard before, that they had no idea about before. And this process of repentance, it was getting them into the right frame of mind, but more than that, the right frame of heart to be able to receive what God wanted to give to them. So we can see that repentance opens up our hearts to be able to hear what God is trying to tell us. Without repentance... We're just going our own way. We're happy with what we're doing. We've got no need for God. We, 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 we just want to do our own thing. But when we repent, that's when we bring ourselves into a place where we can hear what God wants to say to us. We can see just how special repentance is to God in Luke chapter 15, verses, oh, starting at verse 1. So the parable of the lost sheep. Then drew near unto him all the publicans publicans and sinners for to hear him talking about Jesus and the Pharisees and scribes murmured saying this man receiveth sinners and eateth with them and he spake this parable unto them saying what man of you having an hundred sheep if he lose one of them doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it and when he hath found it he layeth it on his shoulders rejoicing and when he cometh home he calleth together his friends and neighbours saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. That is, it, it just shows how important it is to God. There may be many people following God, but 
but God is still looking for that one lost sheep, the one who is astray, the one who needs to come into his fold. He reaches out. He needs. He wants them to come back in. He wants them to come and be saved. Then the parable of the lost coin. Either what woman, having ten pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, doth not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently till she find it? And when she hath found it, she calleth her friends and her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the peace which I had lost. Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. It's a similar sort of a situation in this second parable. They both Notice that both of the parables end with talking about there being joy in heaven over one sinner that repenteth and joy in the presence of angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. Notice that it doesn't say that the angels themselves have joy over a sinner repenting, just that there is joy in their presence. Who is always in the angel's presence? God himself. In Revelation chapter 5 and 11, talking about angels, it says, And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. So they were around about the throne of God. Revelation 7 and 11 talks about, And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. In both of these um, situations where we see a multitude of angels, we see them worshipping God. We see them praising God. We see them... Uh, magnifying God for his, his acts, His wonder, His glory. The angels were created to minister. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 7, it's, talk, it's actually referring back to one of the Psalms um, in the Old Testament. And of the angels, he saith, that he, if we look um, uh, and start at the start of Hebrews 1 and 1, it's talking about God Himself. Um, it says, God who in sundry times and at diverse manners. And then it goes down here and says, And of the angels, he saith, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. The he here is talking about God, as you can see from following through from Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. The angels were created before God created the heavens and the earth. They were there before God started the creation that we know of. So what ministering did the angels do before mankind were here? They weren't ministering to people. They worshipped God, just like we saw in Revelation chapters 5 and 11. They, they were there to minister to God. Their, their design was to minister to God, to His needs, because He is exalted. He is the only one that is worthy to be worshipped. And that is what the angels were designed to do. They were designed to give God the worship and the praise that He was worthy of and is worthy of. The angel's natural state is to worship God in God's presence. That is what they are there to do. After mankind fell into sin, God also used and still uses the angels at particular times to minister to his people as necessary. But that's like a side thing. That's not what the angels were created for. But outside of that, the angels are still there worshipping God around his throne. They're giving him glory. They're giving him majesty because he is worthy of it continually because he is worthy of it he is the only one that is worthy 
No, I don't believe that there's a, a throne floating out in space and that the omnipresent God, the God who is everywhere at once, somehow dwells in it. That's not the case. That is, is an illustration to help us understand that angels are always in the presence of God, worshipping Him and worshipping Him. That's what they were created to do. And when the verse says that there is joy in the presence of the angels, it's talking about God having joy. God having joy that there is sinners repenting, that there is people coming to Him. God is the one who has joy. It's so easy to read it the wrong way and think that the angels are singing and dancing around while it appears that God is... In, while it appears that God, in effect, just sits motionless and passionless. That's kind of... If, if you think that only the angels are rejoicing, then that, that, that's the picture that it paints. It can be strange sometimes to think that God could have joy. When we, we look at the, the Bible stories, we see a God of judgment in the Old Testament. We see a God of love in the New Testament. We... We see even in Jesus, we don't really read about him having joy. But a God who has joy, we don't really see it on face value. What we need to remember is that we as mankind are created in God's image. All of the emotions that we can experience, God can and has um, and does also experience because he created us in his image or his likeness. Things like anger, hate, envy, jealousy, love, grief, and yes, joy are all emotions that God has. There's a song that says, when a sinner makes the Lord his choice, that's when the angels rejoice. It's a very old song. And I'm sure that the angels do rejoice with God. After all, they are created to minister to him. But it's God that has the chief joy when a sinner is saved from the pits of hell. In another place, in Luke chapter 5 and verse 32, it says... I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The whole reason that Jesus came to the earth, well, that Jesus was on the earth, is that he wanted to call people to repentance. He wanted to call people to be saved. Let's have a look at some biblical examples of true repentance. Luke chapter 5, or sorry, 15, Luke chapter 15, starting from verse 11. And he, he is Jesus. He said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the youngest son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want or need, or, or to, to really starve, basically. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger. He was feeling sorrow at that time, at the situation that he was in. He was realizing the enormity of his mistake and he was realizing that he needed to do something about it. He had a sorrow for what he had done, for where he found himself. And I, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, that 
is the confession of his sins. And I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. There was a forsaking. He went, he left where he was, the pigsty, the place where he found it, and he turned around and he went to his father. He forsook that life that he'd been living. The father, God, loves repentance so much when he sees someone starting along that road to go back to him, he goes the extra mile to meet him, to meet them. That is the father that we have. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. The son left his sinful ways behind and came back to his father. He made a complete break from living the worldly life that was displeasing to his father and came back to the right way of living in his father's house. The next um, account of biblical repentance I want to look at is Saul, who then later became known Paul on the road to Damascus in the book of Acts. When he was faced with the truth of his situation, he had two options. He could either repent or keep going his old way. You see, Saul was a man who... Well, we'll go into that very soon. Acts chapter 9 and verse 1. Saul had been... uh, Well, basically it says in another place that Saul... followed um, the law of the Pharisees and he did that really perfectly um, is, is, is basically what it comes down to. He, he, had, he, he did everything that was asked of him. He, he followed God with zeal. He, he wanted to do everything um, that was right before God. And so it comes here in Acts chapter 9 verse 1 after Stephen had, had been stoned for following God and Saul yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He had already persecuted the saints in Jerusalem at this time. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. And suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man, but they led him by the hand, and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight and did neither eat nor drink. This shows the sorrow that Saul had for what he had been doing. He basically set up a fast. He came face to face with God. He realized that persecuting the Christians 
was actually against God and not for God, with, which is what he had really originally thought. He came face to face with God. He came face to face with the fact that what he had been doing was wrong, that it was sinful, and it was against what God wanted to do. And so he came and he realized his, his, uh, his wrong, and he started to make it right. He had a sorrow about what he'd done. Then God called Ananias, um, a Christian, to go and speak to, to Saul. He didn't really want to do it um, because um, Saul was actually putting people into prison and, and basically getting them killed. So, but God said, no, um, I've called him. And in Acts 9 and 19, it says, And when he had received meat, talking about Saul, he was strengthened because um, he'd been fasting. Then was Saul set in days with the disciples which were at Damascus. And straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. This was the confession of his sin. Because he rejected Jesus. Because he rejected the right way. And now he was basically saying before all of the Jews that this way that I've been persecuting, it's actually right. I, I was wrong in what I did. This is the true way. But all that heard him were amazed and said, It's not this he that destroyed them which called on the, his, this name in Jerusalem and came hither for that intent that he might bring them bound unto the chief priests. But Saul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ. This was the forsaking. He kept preaching Jesus. He, he kept doing what he was called to do, um, as he found out was the truth. In Acts chapter 26, verses 19 to, to, to 20, it says, Whereupon, O King Agrippa, this is Saul, now called Paul, talking to the King Agrippa in defense of himself. Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision, that, that light that shone from heaven, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coasts of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should retent, repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. He continued along the way that he needed to go. And an Old Testament example, Jonah chapter 3, verses 4 to 10. Jonah had been called to go to Nineveh and to preach to that wicked city. And after a bit of running away and being brought back into, into line and where he needed to go, he came to the city that God had called him to in the first place. And in verse 4 it says, And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey. And he cried and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. That was sorrow. Sackcloth was mourning. Sackcloth was being sorry for something that was happening. And then continuing on, it says, For word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne. And he laid his robe from him and covered him with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn every one from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. That is a confession that what they have done is wrong. That they're talking that the ways have been evil, that they've done violence. That is a confession of their wrongdoing. 
Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? And God saw their works that they turned from their evil way and God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them and he did it not. That is their forsaking of what they had done. In the Bible, in the book of Revelation and chapter 2, we see a list of churches that, um, that God had instructed um, John to, to give the messages to. And every time a church was found wanting, well, almost every time a church was found wanting, but every time that a church was found that weren't in the right place with God, they were, they were asked to repent. It says, um, unto the cha- angel of the church of Ephesus, write, and it says, you know, nevertheless I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. It says, remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. And it says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. Under the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, and it says, um, it says, okay, they, they were pretty good. Um, they didn't actually need to repent. There was nothing that God had against them. Under the angel of the church in Pergamos, write, but I have a few things against thee. And, and then it says, goes on further and it says, Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Unto the church in Thyatira, notwithstanding I have a few things against thee. And it goes through what they're doing. And it says... except they repent of their deeds. I'm going to do great judgments against them. And to the angel of the church in Sardis, it can be argued that the church in Sardis is, uh, is the worst church of them all because it talks about, I know thy works, that thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. You can't get too much worse than that. And then it says, Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. And then it goes on to the next one. And Philadelphia was pretty good once again. And then it goes on to Laodicea, and it talks about, once again, the need for repentance. They, they're, not, they're neither cold nor hot, and he's going to spew them out of his mouth. And it talks about the need, be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and the, the door and knock. Revelation two really shows the heartbeat of God. When you go through each of the churches, every church that had fault found with them, God said to them, "Repent." God said to them, "You need to make things right." God said to them, "I don't want you to suffer these judgments. I don't want you to be lost." God didn't even say to the worst church. You're dead, there's no hope for you. God said, there's dead, you're dead, repent. God said, you need to make it right. This is your opportunity to make it right. 
But every time in, there was a problem in his church, he said, repent, repent, repent. I don't want you to be lost. I want you to be saved. I want you to get to heaven. To perfectly illustrate this, let's look at Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The call to repent, the call to be in God's kingdom goes out to all. All should come to repentance. If I could get someone to the piano, please. The article of faith that we looked at at the beginning says that we as the United Pentecostal Church of Australia believe in repentance. And that's a good thing because it's in the Word of God. But we can see that it is much more important than just something we believe in as a church. It's got to be more than that. When we read God's Word, we can see just how much repentance is important to God Himself. He calls everyone to repent. He, he, he is long-suffering to us because He wants us to repent. Repentance is the very heartbeat of God because it brings us into a position where God can speak to us and we can listen to and obey His commandments. Repentance is the very foundation of our salvation. Without repentance, it is impossible for God to work with us and move through us because the Bible makes it very clear how much God hates sin. Repentance is... As far as I'm aware, the only thing that we are aware of that gives God joy when a sinner comes to Him, when someone says, God, I've been walking in sin. I've been, been trying, I've been doing the wrong thing. I've been following what I want to do, but now I want to walk with you. That gives God joy. <laughs> that gives God an incredible, powerful joy when someone changes their lives to walk with Him. I believe that it would be wrong to talk about repentance and not give people an actual chance to repent. If this is your first church service or you don't know much about God, the first thing you need to do to start having a relationship with God, to start doing what God wants, to start getting the blessings of being one of God's people is to repent of all of your sins. To repent... to to turn away, to be sorry for, to confess, to turn away from those things that you know you've done wrong against God or against mankind. As you continue your walk with God, God will then progressively, bit by bit, more and more reveal other things that are sin that you had no idea were wrong in the first place when you came to Him. And that's the time you need to repent of those sins as well when you realize that you're doing wrong. Or maybe you might be new in the church or, or even been coming for a while. Maybe you realize that there's been a missing element to your repentance. Have you been trying to confess your sins and turn away from them without being truly sorry for what you've done? Or have you been sorry for your sins and tried to turn away from them without even being willing to admit that you've done wrong just because you know that you should do it but you, you're not willing to admit that you're actually doing wrong or have you been sorry for your sins and confessed them before God without truly trying to turn away from them without truly trying to actually forsake them
to get rid of them out of your life. Each of those three examples is not true repentance. You need all parts to be truly repentant, to have that true repentance for God, what God is looking for. You need to have a godly sorrow for what you've done wrong. You need to confess your sins, which includes confessing that they actually are sins. It's not enough to say that, well, I've done this and that, and inside you're thinking, well, it's not that bad. You know, it's not, not really really something that, that I'm, I'm just doing it because, you know, someone told me I needed to. No, no. You need to realize that the stuff that you've been doing is against God and it's not acceptable in His sight. That is the first thing that you need to do to come to God. And then you need to forsake those things, to turn away from them, to get rid of them, to walk completely away, to turn and walk in the opposite direction from those things that you know that are wrong. So I invite you to come and pray.